come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Sponsored by the OVH Cloud Startup Program. Hello, you have reached the Talk Tank, the official LSE entrepreneur podcast, where we delve into the minds of those who think, live, and breathe outside the box. I am Lin, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to Bits and Bytes, our series dedicated to innovation and technology at the heart of society's change. By delving into the technology that drives transformation, we will meet the humans who revolutionize our lives bit by bit. For today's episode, we're having a very special guest. That is Josh Luber, the co-founder and the current chief vision officer of Fanatics Trading Cards and the founder of Zero Cool, the company's pop culture, art, and entertainment vertical. He's also really well known for being the co-founder of StockX, the world's first stock market of things, where he led the rise from idea to billion dollar company in less than three years, cementing StockX as the world's leading marketplace for sneakers, apparel, and collectibles. In 2019, George stepped down as CEO to focus on StockX's startup within a startup activities, including leading the nascent trading cards vertical. A year later, he left StockX to return to his entrepreneurial roots with the goal of revolutionizing the trading card industry as he's done for sneakers. Before StockX, George founded and ran four other startups and in between each had varying corporate jobs ranging from IBM strategy consultant to Alison Bird bankruptcy attorney. He has an undergraduate BBA and joined JDMBA from Emory University. So with all this said, I'm so happy to welcome you Josh on our show and we're very excited to hear from you. Thank you for having me. My name is Josh Luber. I am the current co-founder and chief vision officer for Fanatics Collectibles. Before that, I was the CEO and co-founder of StockX, created a number of other startups that no one's ever heard of, nor will they. But yeah, I'm a startup guy. I'm a collector. And, you know, and now I get to help manage the trading card industry as, as we move that forward. Thank you. Great. Thank you for touching upon all these companies. We are, well, we jumped to definitely going to jump into Fanatics and StockX as well. I would just like to first start off from really, the really beginning of StockX's uh, history. So starting with StockX from your first startup regarding Campus. During your time at IBM, what had really prompted you to start Campus? And how did you even go about like executing this, such a big task of trying to accumulate all these different kinds of data points of prices? and then accumulate them onto a website. So how did you go about that? And what was the main idea behind it? Yeah, well, I mean, you hit on, you know, sort of the core of, of what Campus was. So, you know, I'm a startup guy. I've created like three or four companies before I went and took the job at IBM. We had shut down the last startup during the crash of 08. Mm. And I never in a million years thought that I would go work at IBM, but, you know, pretty much the worst job market of my life and, and, you know, you need a, a job and one conversation leads to another. And so <laughs> I started working at IBM in 2010. I was part of their mm-hmm. internal strategy group as consulting team. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're a startup guy and you go to IBM or any company like IBM, you, first thing you do is you start working on stuff on the side. And I, I had a couple other uh, side projects before Campus, but in 20, end of 2011, beginning of 2012, Mm-hmm. When the sneaker industry started to approximate what it was going to become, really, this was on the back of Instagram. Facebook had just bought Instagram. Instagram was going through its own hockey stick growth. And, and all sneaker ads ever wanted to do is see what shoes they have, show up 
show up their shoes to other people. So I'm at IBM. I'm doing a ton of data work in my job at IBM. And, you know, I've collected sneakers all my life. And so, so I really had a, a, I don't want to say a moment, but I, you know, I was, I, I almost forced myself to, to create a business around sneakers because I was doing all this work, this data work for IBM. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I thought, man, I wonder if I get all of these sneaker data just to play with mm -hmm. my own amusement, just to kind of see what I could do with it because of, you know, all the stuff going on in the sneaker industry at that time. This is following like the Concord release of the Christmas of 2011, Galaxy oh. Foam and, and All-Star in 2012. So, so I reached out to one of my former startup partners and we figured out how to scrape eBay data. We figured out how to get a hold of, of sneaker sales on eBay. And, you know, to the specific question for Campus, which was a, a price guide for sneakers, it was, mm -hmm. it was the Kelly Blue Book for sneakers. It was not dissimilar to what, what Card Ladder is doing today for trading cards. The question was simply, you know, what are sneakers worth? How can we actually figure, find what's the true market value for these products? And all of the work was in cleaning the data because we were able to, to scrape the data from eBay, but eBay auctions are written by people. And so what you have is it would say Air Jordan 6 Carmine, but then it would say LeBron, Yeezy, Kobe, Shaq, you know, and like 19 mm -hmm. other keywords in the title. And so there was just a lot of work teaching myself how to write queries and how to clean the data to try to understand what sneaker is actually being sold in that auction. And then once you have that, then it's, you know, clean data to be able to, to create price guides and, and everything mm -hmm. else in it. So that's what, that's what uh, Campus was. It was a price guide and it was on the side at IBM and did that for mm -hmm. a couple of years until we figured out how to basically how to turn that into a bigger business, which sure we'll, we'll talk about. Well, yeah. So as you guys, you already talked about, so how did this really just then spin into StockX? Because if you just think about it, even if, as I looked into the company, right, it, w it was a really short amount of time while StockX grew a lot. And I'm just really curious, first of all, in terms of um, itself, of course, how this price guide turned into this billion dollar business. And second of all, is just what type of plans had you had in mind? Or did you just go with the flow? Or what type of structures or plans did you think about? What type of, let's say, business pillars you had in terms of building the business itself? So, you know, Campus was a side project. So, you know, we were doing this. We started to have a little bit of traction. People started using the price guide. People started following us. But really, the question was, how do I turn this into something? How do I leave IBM? What's the business? And I talked to everybody in the sneaker industry, Nike, eBay, Foot Locker, Complex, you name it. And there was never really a good fit, you know, trying to find someone essentially to buy campus and, and integrate into the business. And the short version of a, of a long story is that um, I uh, met Dan Gilbert, who's the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers and Quicken Loans and about a hundred other businesses um, in pretty much the entire city of Detroit. And this idea that I was pitching to everybody, which was the idea of, that you could take the fundamental data that we'd build at campus and turn it into essentially a stock market for mm -hmm. sneakers. He had a very similar idea around using stock market mechanics to create a different marketplace. And so we were able to, to sort of come together. I sold campus to Dan and became partners with him in turning campus as the data layer into StockX as, as the marketplace. And so in the end of 2015, I moved to Detroit and, and built StockX, and which launched in the beginning of February of 20, February of 2016. But if you think about the, the fundamental value that you're providing to consumers, it's the same thing. Campus was about what's a fair price for sneakers, understanding yeah. what the market price is, 
StockX is the same thing, but now adding the commerce layer of here's the, what's a fair price to buy it or sell it at, it, it all comes down to that, that just, you know, the core backbone of, of both of it is, is what's the fair market price. I see. And then could you just also talk about, cause I know for, for StockX, one of the major selling points was that you were able to check the validity and offer for sneaker. So you could check if something was fake or not. And how did you guys build upon this whole operation, the whole system around which you can detect fake sneakers? Yeah. So it, you know, it, it's, it's one of the most interesting questions because everybody is interested in it and there's definitely value there, right? Everybody mm -hmm. sees the value that you're not going to get a fake pair of shoes. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're a, a 14 year old kid and you've saved up all your money and buy very easies, you know, you certainly want to make sure that yeah, it's not going to be fake. However, from a, a business standpoint and from a, you know, overall structure, authentication is, it's almost a red herring. It's, it's the, it's the ante to play. All it, it does is it helps standardize the product because the real value is this model, this unique bid-ask model, a single product page. And that's what creates efficiency. That's what creates the access. This is <laughs> mimicking how the stock market works. We didn't make any of this up. All we do is copy how the stock market works. And so authentication is just one part of standardization and you have to have a, a standardized product so you can have everything happen in, in one place on one page. Mm -hmm. So, but to make that happen, we had to have a uh, whole authentication process right now. I've actually, you know, since I left StockX at this point, you know, a year and a half ago, I don't, I think there are maybe 10, 12 different authentication centers around the world, but obviously we started in Detroit and there was one there, but building the ability to authenticate sneakers, it's elbow grease. It's, you know, it's process. It's, Hey, here's mm -hmm. a sneaker. Here's a fake sneaker. Here's a real sneaker. Rip them apart, identify the differences, document it you know, build training materials, yeah. teach people how to do it. Like it is, is really, really just about process and, and then scaling that process and training people and trying to maintain quality control. There's no, there's no secret sauce. There's no real technology. Mm. It's about, it's just process. How, how did you guys go about like actually recruiting these people? Did you just, just bring them sneakers and then try to check if they can tell they're real or not and then, then recruit them or yeah. How did this go? Well, you hit the, the, the right issue, which is that nobody this job doesn't exist. I mean, now it does now between us and Goat and eBay and, mm. and other and consignment shops, there are actually people that have experience. But when we started this in 2015, nobody had experience. Yeah. It wasn't a job that existed. Mm -hmm. So it was more about finding people that were willing to learn and were interested in learning. And, and frankly, that's mainly people that just love sneakers. And so a lot of people, either we found people from retail or just collectors, but Theoretically, you could teach anybody how to be a sneaker authenticator. You just have to mm. want to learn that and want to be around sneakers 24 seven nonstop. And so, you know, again, you want to find people that actually love sneakers and part of it. And, you know, of all the areas of the company, that's the one area where sneaker knowledge and love of sneakers is, you know, if not necessary, way more valuable, but you know, you're hiring Android engineers. You know, it doesn't matter if the Android engineer knows anything about sneakers. It only matters if they're a great Android engineer. Mm -hmm. So different. Okay, great. Thank you. Also, just turning to the, well, the success of StockX, or further continuing rather the success of StockX. I, I, of course, during my research, I looked around all your social media pages. I just went to Instagram. I found this really cute picture, which was dated back, I think, 3rd of September, 2016. And showcasing you and Greg Schwartz with your daughters on the playground. I was really curious, why was this such a defining moment in your life? And how does this relate to the success of StockX? 
Yeah. So Greg was the co-founder and COO um, of the company and I mean, really the two of us co-ran the company and the StockX, you know, as I mentioned, it's all about, it's all about the model. It's about this unique form of commerce. And if you think about the stock market generally and, and the model we created at StockX and any marketplace for that matter, it's about liquidity. The more liquidity there is, the more products in the market, the more bids and asks, the more efficient the market becomes and mm -hmm. it becomes a, you know, sort of a virtuous cycle. And so we built the business, we launched it and, you know, we were really grinding for the first, you know, six months, you know, mm -hmm. went from one sale to two sale to four sale to, you know, just very slowly in September, we launched in February 16 and September 16 was the first big Nike release after we had launched it was a, it was a jordan one bread it was you know OG, oh, you know okay. black and red jordan yeah. one and by having this much liquidity hit the primary market at one time on that release we now had a lot of liquidity available at StockX or for the secondary market and so we were doing about 60 to 70 sales a day mm -hmm. and that day we did 301 mm -hmm. which you know, today is, is trivial. I mean, today we probably do 30, 40,000 sales a day, but to go from 70 to 300 was unbelievable because mm -hmm. that, so that was the day that we really saw the power of the model, the power of, of added liquidity in the system. And I mean, that day, you know, Greg and I are, are you know, you have a little app on your phone that, that has all like the sales mm -hmm. and stuff. And we're refreshing that, you know, every six seconds mm -hmm. all day, because, you know, you hit 70 by midday, we never done, you know, so. And, and that picture, he and I went out dinner that night with our families. And after dinner, we went to this park across the street from the restaurant and we're pushing our daughters on the phone. And I don't know who took that picture. I think it might've been Adam, one of the other guys who worked with us, but we're basically both looking at our phone, refreshing mm. the app again, while we're both pushing our daughters. And, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a planned shot, but it was a perfect uh, microcosm of the whole thing. And like, if you ask like, what's the day that the moment that we knew it was going to work. That was the moment. Doesn't mean that we had any idea it would be this size or scale or, or as successful, but that was the moment that we were validated that the model was a better model for this form of commerce. We still had to then execute the business and do a million things, but that was the, okay, like the theory is right. Now it's about execution. That's great to hear. And also great for Adam to actually capture the moment. But oh, 100%. Touching upon the fact that you also just, since you mentioned this idea of revolutionizing commerce and uh, how you saw that in this space of like different kinds of collectible items, this could be a viable option and the way of going about it. What kind of role would such kind of companies like Nike or Adidas play in, in this place? Since uh, wouldn't it be more better for them to, to not do away the idea of like a retail price and, and still have the secondary market since that will create the hype around all these different kinds of products that they sell? Or what's your opinion on that? Everything around pricing, I mean, this is the, the real vision. This is the big idea. This is the, okay. the, if there is a, you know, revolutionary part of, of all of this, the idea that pricing in the industry is massively outdated and antiquated and the idea of having a retail price, a fixed price that is determined by some company in some, like some way mm -hmm. for these type of products. And that's illogical. It's actually completely, completely irrational because there are some products that exist, some consumer goods in the world that like sneakers, like trading cards, like a lot of streetwear, they are products that are supply and demand constrained. They, there's a certain amount of supply, there's a lot of demand, 
And those products should be priced according to supply and demand. The market should set mm -hmm. the price for those products. And by having fixed price, what you have is the way the sneaker industry has operated for years, which is essentially leveraging, you know, mass chaos as a distribution strategy. So, that, hey, we're going to just let people camp outside of the store and, mm -hmm. and riot or have, you know, bots and, and have computers crashing and have, you know, or, or just, you know, having to win raffles with ridiculously yeah. slim odds. Mm -hmm. All that stuff is, is illogical. The only reason it exists is because there's never been a way to accurately price these type of products that are, exist as consumer goods, but not, you know, stocks and bonds and traditional assets. And that's the big idea around all of this is, is there a better way to price everything? And that leads to better distribution, better access mm -hmm. and all of that. And so this is a, a longer, a much longer conversation. Fast forward, you know, six years to last week mm -hmm. where we launched zero pool which is a trading card brand for culture mm -hmm. and having a the first released which was a trading card set called v friends which is a nft project from gary v mm -hmm. but this was sold straight to consumer using a blind up auction and letting the letting the market set the price for those products by doing that and this you know gets to your your question on should nike should brands like that use this to destroy the secondary market all of it mm -hmm. the answer to all of that is is no like this is if there's a silver bullet it's the idea of how blind dutch auctions create a, a system of fair distribution of equitable distribution because v fans box by all accounts the clearing price ended up being very high it was two thousand one hundred fifty dollars mm -hmm. right oh, but okay mm -hmm. the secondary market still took hold of it, which is how the, the theory of this works, that there should still be headroom, there should be headspace to grow. Mm -hmm. And the box was selling for as much as $17,000. It's now back down to about 10, wow. but that's still, it's still four and a half X what clearing price is. Mm -hmm. So there's still, the secondary market was still this, all of that will still happen, but it creates a more fair system of distribution. So I see it's a massively uh, complicated question and it's long. And by the way, we, we wrote a recap that is a blog post, a recap of the V friends auction and a deep, deep dive into how blind dot auction works mm -hmm. and why and there's 45 pages, but you know, trading cards are zero cool.com or on the zero cool website. You can see the recap of that auction, but it's okay. the longest mm -hmm. possible version, longest possible answer to your question of all the, the logic around pricing distribution, all this and, and blind dot auction. And so we finally wrote this sort of definitive, like, here's the reason why the decline. So, okay, sure. I'll definitely check it out. And I hope my our audience will also just take a look. It is, at it. It is good, good follow And frankly, given the, you know, your, your audience is in, in, or, or a lot of, a lot of your audiences in school and, you know, like, yeah, it, it reads like a textbook. It reads like a, you know, right. a, a, a much more fun, you know, textbook around. Right. It's definitely going to be a better like uh, pause and break from all that different kind of academic work. So I would definitely want to turn to Fanatics, your new venture since you left StockX in 2019, I think. Yep. So from then on, from StockX, how did you, first of all, of course, what was your journey into Fanatics and how did you get to this position of being co-founder, CEO, CVO of Fanatics Collectibles? And what's your, as of, as of now, long-term vision for the current company? Yep. So... I was fortunate to be a little ahead of the curve getting back into trading cards. I rediscovered trading cards at the end of 2018. Mm -hmm. In the summer of 19, I stepped down as CEO of StockX and I was spending a lot of my time at StockX focused on cards. And then basically, I, you know, there was just so much opportunity in trading cards and I thought it was 
trading cards were a more perfect product for the vision that I had anyway for StockX around market-based pricing and equitable distribution, all the things we just talked about. And so I left in September of 20 with the goal of one, creating a trading card brand for culture, for non-sports, and two, continuing the vision of market-based pricing, equitable distribution, blind edge auctions, and, and that trading cards, I thought could be a more perfect product for that. And so in order to do that, I really needed to move from the secondary market, which is where StockX is, to the primary market. Yeah. And so for trading cards, it was, can I create a trading card brand for culture, primary market? And is there an opportunity to somehow either work with Topps and Panini or acquire them, acquire the licenses or somehow move there? And I, I talked to a couple of different people and ultimately ended up partnering with Michael Rubin and Fanatic. There's maybe have been one other person in the whole world could have acquired the licenses and do what we did because Fanatics, what their core business was and Michael's relationship with the leagues and PAs, and this is what his mm -hmm. business was. They were licensed products for those other, for the, for, for apparel and headwear and everything else. Mm -hmm. So it was really a perfect match to be able to work with Michael and Fanatics and uh, go after that. And so we were able to acquire the licenses and we created a new company. It's called Fanatics Collectibles. It is majority owned by Fanatics, but it's a separate company, okay. but the, the leagues and PAs, the NBA and NBA Players Association, MLB, MLBPA, and you know, they're all equity partners in our business. And we now have the exclusive rights for, you know, baseball, basketball, football. We acquired Tops earlier this year. And then two weeks ago, we launched Zero Cool, which is the trading card brand yeah. for culture. So for sports or for main, it's baseball, basketball, football, and culture, although Tops also has F1 and uh, and soccer and Star Wars, and cards, mm -hmm. kids and some other stuff. So, you know, we now get to be in the position where we're the primary manufacturer for the majority of the trading card industry and mm -hmm. get to, to start to evolve the industry in a lot of the exact same ways that I was talking about earlier with regard to different distribution models, different pricing models, mm -hmm. trying to create a, a more fair system for products that are fundamentally, you know, financial assets. They're, they're mm -hmm. equal parts, financial asset and consumer goods. So they shouldn't be sold at retail price. They shouldn't be sold, you know, using traditional distribution methods. And mm -hmm. now we get to do it. Now we get to go back and, and do that. And I got to say, it, it's pretty fun. You get to, you get to make baseball That's cards. That's great too. And I assume it also ties really back to your, your, I would say childhood as well. I assume, I assume you didn't just get into cards right now. You were probably a vivid collector as well. Exactly. I have, I have the exact same story as every other, you know, 44 year old you know, getting back into cards. I collected cards when I was a kid in the middle of the junk wax era. You know, I collected from like 86 to 92, you know, 86, I was what, eight years old. And you know, that was, it was all of us. The number of conversations I have over the last two years where literally mid conversation, someone will say, hold on, I gotta, I gotta text my father and tell him to find our cards in the basement or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we all have the exact same story. So wow. it's pretty fun. Yeah. That's great. Connecting this childhood like passion with your current work is absolutely amazing. I hope all of our audience pretty much I assume also aspires to, to be like in, in this kind of position like you. Could you then just talk a bit more about like Zero Core as well? Because of course it's such a recent like the launch of the company itself, like the subsidiary and also your, your collaboration with VFriends. Could you just a bit elaborate of like how WeFriends pretty much currently shapes the company and what the, the future idea would be behind Zero Core? Yeah, you know, Zerocool is a trading card brand for culture, for non-sports, for all areas of culture other than sports. Mm -hmm. And traditionally, there have been trading card sets for non-sports. Most of it has been traditional IP like TV and movies. Mm -hmm. um, but Zerocool is specifically about all areas. So we debated for a while what set should we launch with. 
And for a lot of reasons, we felt like Be Friends was a perfect set because one, it's very far away from traditional IP. So it, it's setting the stage. Hey, look, this is going to be about all areas. Two, like it or not, and obviously there's a lot of polarizing thoughts about it. You know, NFTs are a part of culture for them. NFTs are yeah. a important <laughs> part of culture. And so it's, you know, just respecting that. And then Gary obviously sits at the intersection of trading cards and NFTs for a long time because he is such a, you know, what he's, what he's been. So it was really a perfect thing to launch, but we've already announced what the next set is, which is a trading card set for the movie Jackass. Mm -hmm. um, so Jackass Forever, which came out a couple months ago. So now we're in much more traditional IP. V Friends was very limited, exclusive, you know, premium, one box, uh, one pack per box, 10 cards, thousand boxes, mm. very limited. I, Jack has to be way different. 10,000 boxes, okay. 60 cards a box, like, you know, much more. I, my gut is that the, you know, market, the clearing price for Jackass is a couple hundred bucks versus, you know, V Friends was a couple thousand. So just much, and by the way, much different audience. And yes. this is what V Friends Zero Cool is about. It's about ex ex opening trading cards to different audiences. You know, could I convince people who like Johnny Knoxville to buy baseball cards? Maybe, mm -hmm. but way, there's way more likely to buy cards if I make cards of Johnny Knoxville and, and Steve-O and, and the Jackets crew, right? And, mm -hmm. and that's really what, what Zero Cool is about. That's great to hear. And, and what, what's your like standard like decision uh, when you make like a decision in terms of like what type of, well, sets you want to make? And as, as again, like, as you mentioned that in terms of bit scale, what's, what type of factors do you guys usually consider in, in these yeah. decisions? So, you know, we kind of, there's kind of like three guiding principles for, for zero cool. One is we want to always make cards that have long-term value. If that means that we have to err on the side of lower supply, if that means that we have to spend more money, Jackass actually has collectible packaging. So the packaging and the boxes have parallels to them. So the different colored boxes things. So you can oh. get one of the really rare ones. You know, we spend a lot of money. The boxes are beautiful, but the boxes yeah. themselves, you know, are, you know, could ultimately be the most valuable part of the, of the whole set. And, but also, you know, what I spoke about before, you know, equitable distribution, you know, fair access, yeah. fair pricing. So, you know, really, as we think about it, it's, you know, I mean, those are, those are the keys, but you know, we have to be able to create real value and make cards that have, have long-term value. Otherwise, you know, people aren't going to stick around. Great. Then just regarding this, because since we have made a majority UK audience and more international, I would just like to ask you more about to talk a bit more about your, your, I would say intuitions regarding why the trading card, uh, business, or like, I would say even maybe sector even has a huge potential ahead of itself, both in the primary and the secondary market and why, for example, these people, which are not based in the U S who might not be part of this trading card culture, why should they be aware? Why should they maybe even join the part? Well, trading cards, basically. What's interesting about trading cards generally is that it's become a really big business in the last five years. Mm -hmm. um, it's been around literally since the age up until the last five or six years, most people either forgot that it existed or never knew it existed. And it's grown a lot in the last five years, been a lot of articles, a lot of money going into it. But the number of people who collect trading cards today is still very, very small. I mean, mm -hmm. and it's hard to even get a grasp on it, but best guess there's maybe 2 million people that have bought or sold a sold a card in the last year. Compare that to, you know, Fanatics has over 85 million sports fans in their database that have bought, you know, product. I mean, it's so far um, away from being a mainstream product, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just such a gap between those that collect and the possibility of those um, that don't, because 
trading cards are a historical record, a, a record of a moment of time and place. And, and historically, that's been the record of the 2018 NBA season. But there's no reason that's not a record of the the movies that came out in, in 2022 yeah. or, you know, or, or the best, you know, the best rappers of the last decade, mm -hmm. or whatever it is. And because of its unique place where I think trading cards actually sit at the intersection of four different industries, which is commerce, culture, finance, and gambling. And so when you have that, there's just a lot of different business opportunities, different mm -hmm. business models, different business partnerships, different, different customer bases that you can tap into and to create a really unique product and industry. I mean, there's a world where if the wrong people got a hold of trading cards, trading cards look like Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. There's another world where if the wrong people got a hold of it, it looks like uh, Wall Street. And I say the wrong people because I think the right is a combination of all of this, right? Where, <laughs> where you have a little bit of, of all of it that you shouldn't yeah. have too much of any one thing. And, and that's okay, right? Like there's a lot of different ways for people to take it. And you know, that I think gives us more optimism than anything else, which is that we're just scratching the surface and there's a lot of different ways to go. Okay. I, I hope uh, our future generation of people here at LSU will uh, see the potential in the cards and some of them might hopefully even join the game might be. Since you touched upon NFTs as well, of course, it's such a hot topic. I have to uh, cover that as well. In just in terms of like how crypto will really maybe even like change or like affect the, the collectible space, I would say. So not just specifically focusing on, on like cards or like different kinds of things, because if we just think about how StockX also introduced NFTs on the platform and also such the growth of such platforms like Topshot, what do you think crypto will pay in, in the space? Yeah, I mean, look, there's no question that the NFTs, Web3, crypto, I mean, it's here to stay. It's real. Yeah. It's it's going to be a, a huge part of our, our lives for the future. And it's clearly what's next. There already are digital trading cards. There already are trading cards that take the form of NFTs. To date, the trading card brands and people that have created them, I think I've been testing the waters, iterating through different formats. So I think we have some work to do to figure out the right way mm -hmm. to mirror physical and digital. Clearly, the concept of, of, of ball NFTs, the idea that physical products can sit in a vault and people can buy and sell those without taking possession by using an NFT. StockX launched this for trading cards. eBay just mm. announced that they haven't launched it. PSA just announced it. I know at least two or three startups working on it almost as like a SaaS product. Like that is inevitable. I mean, obviously every everybody sees that everybody's working on that. And for, so for sure, that part of it is a no-brainer and it's great, right? There's yeah. no reason you know, just to use StockX because it's up and running. And I wasn't, you know, they, they launched this after I left, but we always talked about there's some, there's some inefficiency in if the only reason I want the sneaker is to resell it, why am I even taking possession? Why am I wasting yeah. time shipping it? Why am I wasting gas and shipping mm -hmm. materials and, and all that? So, mm -hmm. you know, StockX will hold the sneaker. You have the mm -hmm. NFT. You can sell it as many times as you want. And then eventually somebody who wants to physically own it can take possession of it and say, hey, please send it. But in the meantime, I have the NFT, which gives me all the same right. I can wow, buy and okay. sell it. And the product never leaves a stock as warehouse until the person that actually wants to own it takes possession of it. It is the most like logical, obvious part of that. So mm -hmm. there's the whole digital collectible part of it that I think will, will, yeah. there's a lot of iteration to happen in, in terms of mm -hmm. what's valuable, what's not, how it is. But like the idea of like of day trading physical Items, mm -hmm. love it. It's it's awesome, and 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 that'll be how I think all of 
all consumer goods companies will have to uh, look at that in some way mm -hmm. for their products. And I think that's a good thing. That's absolutely crazy. Never really thought of this idea, but now it just absolutely makes like logical right. sense. Wow. If you, if you win a shoe on, on sneakers, if you win a shoe on, on Nike raffle, but you know, you're going to resell it. Yeah. Well, there's no reason why it should be shipped to you. You have to list it somewhere else then you ship it somewhere else. By the way, if you're selling it on StockX, they're then authenticating shipping to someone else, mm -hmm. right? It just got shipped three times. Yeah. There was no reason for that. If you could just do it digitally and then exactly. move it from, from the warehouse mm -hmm. to that person on the other end of the StockX transaction. Oh, that's crazy. Okay. Thank you. And now we're just going back into our last section, uh, which we named Real Talk, where we deal with some heavier questions, just more related to society or just the ways how people think. And uh, one of our sign signature questions would be that what's an unconventional truth you believe helped you to achieve your successes? So I don't know if this has become conventional or not, but it shocks me how much I it shocked me how much I still fight against the status quo. The number of times that I hear, not just from companies that I work in, but just across the board, the number of times I hear things like, well, that's the way it's done, or that's the way it's always been done. Like to me, that's almost like the reason to do it, you know, the other way. And it's everybody talks about, you know, being innovative or, or, you know, disruption and, and moving forward. But like when push comes to shove, it's so hard to move off of, you know, risk around, you know, money and, mm -hmm. you know, big numbers and, and all of that. And yeah, I mean, I honestly, in the last, you know, decade becoming more successful, slowly moving into rooms of more rooms of, of power and decision-making, it always felt like, you know, disruption was so revered and innovation was so revered and that particularly in, you know, the sort of the tech industry now and, and how we think about startups and it's still real, just really not, it's just really not the case. And, you know, there's still, and there's a lot of reasons why, and sometimes that's the right decision to make for, you know, for the, the risk reward of it. But I think I'm on the far side of that. And I also, so that. That's one and very much related to that. There's something around, um, the right way to say this, there's something around just being yourself and being okay to, you know, sort of be yourself. I never wore a hat before I started working with Dan or I never wore a hat regularly um, before I start. And, but there was some sort of sign when the TED people, and I did a TED talk where the TED people were like, oh, well, if you're wearing a hat at work, you know, you should just dress however you're dressed. And Dan was very much supportive of like, just be yourself. Don't, you know, don't you know, sort of change. And so the ability for all of us now, particularly as so much is Zoom to just get rid of all these sort of like mm -hmm. old working norms around how, you know, how we should yeah. work. It's a great, mm -hmm. it's a great thing to be able to do that. And mm -hmm. you don't, you still run into, into pockets of that, but yeah, I mean, which by the way, it sounds like it should be the other way that sort of revering disruption and being yourself, but mm -hmm. you know, that, that stuff is still evolving. So it's important. Let's see. Okay. Thank you for sharing that a piece of advice, uh, not advice, but insight into your opinions. I would also just in terms of more collectible specific, it just in terms of, well, when you see how such kind of things like StockX evolved and how it builds a resale market, and even in, t in terms of like uh, trading cards as well, how can 
those people, let's say, who are also passionate about these items, but cannot really afford it, being able, so how can we create more of an environment where these people could also participate who might not have the, the sufficient financial backgrounds to actually, well, as, as, as I would say, chase their passions? Yep. So this is a really good question and a good topic that people, I think, have a, a really big misconception around that for some reason, people assume that, that these products, whether it be sneakers or trading cards, that they should be artificially priced lower because there's just been inefficiencies in how they've been priced historically. Nobody sees a Ferrari and says, well, hold on, you know, you should price a Ferrari so that everybody can afford it. Like, mm -hmm. Ferrari has a certain value and, and it's priced a certain way. And, and mm -hmm. that's how, that's how it is. If you can't afford a Ferrari, then don't drive a Ferrari. And the, like, there's, that's how every industry works, every product category works. Mm -hmm. And sneakers and streetwear and, and trading cards and collectibles are the same thing. There are, there are trading cards at every single price point. There is not a single player in any sport that you can't buy their rookie card for 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. Not, not a single one. Now, not going to be their best rookie card. It may not be the best okay. condition, but that's okay. If you like, it's no one, there's no logic that says that you should be able to buy, you know, LeBron's best rookie card that sells for $2 million at, at auction, that it should be affordable. I know like there's like the market sets the price for it and, and that's what it is. <laughs> what, what there should be though, is fair access to, to buy the cards at their actual market value. That's what's actually been missed was the, this mm -hmm. concept that, oh, hey, you know, we're going to sell a Panini prison box that has, it says $20 on the box and it's on the shelf at Target. Well, mm -hmm. the, the box is worth $150, but we're going to sell it at 20 bucks. And the only way you can get it, by the way, is if you sleep outside Target for three weeks, like mm -hmm. that, or, or by the way, if you know the person stocks the shelves at Target. Target or pay off the person that's not the shelf target. Yeah. Like that's completely irrational and a, and a yeah. horrible thing. Now the, somebody will say, well, Hey, you know, it's a $20 product, you know, or, or it's $20. And I can, uh, I can buy it for $20, but it's not, it's $150 product and it's free money. It's $130 sitting on the shelf. Whoever gets it first gets free money. That's not commerce. That's, that's, well, I don't know what it is. It, it, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not anything. And so that's just not how, how markets work. The way markets work is $150 product is priced at $150. The market prices it and everybody has the same fair chance to buy it. You don't have to sleep outside the store. You don't have to pay off the manager. You have a fair chance to yeah. get it. And that's like truly the, like the goal of the blind auction of market-based pricing of, yeah. of all of this is to get to that standpoint. Okay. Sure. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, we're getting to the end uh, mm -hmm. of the interview and well, thank you for your time. But just to wrap up uh, our interview, I just have a final question to ask you that we usually always ask from everyone who we invite to the podcast. And that would be that if you would run your own podcast or maybe, I don't know, you want to see us to invite someone, who would that specific person be and why, of course? Wow. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> so you're probably too young to remember this, but did you ever watch the show or know of the show, the West wing rings yeah. a bell. So, so the West, the West wing was an, it was an NBC show. It was an hour long drama. It was seven seasons. It was written by Aaron Sorkin. Martin Sheen was the president. And this was, I guess, probably in the late nineties, early two thousands and it ran for seven seasons. And it's one of the like 
most, you know, famous shows of, of all time. And Aaron Sorkin obviously is, is, you know, one of the best writers of all time. So anyway, I feel like everything that I learned, every, every, just everything, I think it all like goes back to like the West Wing. And so I don't know. I, I think that, I think there should be like college courses on like the West Wing. I think that like, we should figure out how to, how to bring it back. There was one of the characters, one, one of the actors on the West Wing, a guy named Joshua Molina, who created a podcast that ran up until about two years ago where he, they went through, you know, every episode and, mm-hmm. and recast it. And it was unbelievable to, you know, to go back and relive it with all the actors and everyone else. And, but like, it still holds up so well and for everything. And are you familiar with Hamilton, the musical? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, is a huge West Wing fan. And oh. that whole the whole musical is just basically just an ode to the West Wing. And there's references <laughs> to the whole thing and, and all of it. So, yeah, I don't know. I think there, there needs to be a, a West Wing college course and related podcasts. So that's, that's completely out of left field, but I would, that's what I would like. And is there any like specific person that you would like to invite them? Say, sing the West Wing. I mean, Aaron. I guess Aaron Sorkin. Right? Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. Well. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week, and leave your message after the beep. <laughs>